Life is overwhelming. In the midst of our modern chaos, all the technology, all the demands, all the bills, the kids, the job, the marriage, it's easy to forget that our Bible is full of stories of people who found themselves overwhelmed too. From Hannah, the mother of Samuel, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. From Nehemiah, a builder, to Jesus, a carpenter. They all knew what it was like at times to carry an overwhelming sense of smallness. Though each circumstance was different, each reaction was the same. Some of the greatest prayers ever prayed. Hello, HTC. Good to have you. Good to have you here in the VV. Glad to see you all the way over there and in, in, uh, over here too, Apple Valley and Hesperia and Phelan and um, Honolulu, Hawaii. We have a site now in Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But, but that would be nice. And uh, you pray, if you never want to see me again, that we would get a sight in Honolulu. Man, that would be great. But uh, it's good to be here in the desert. Desert's great. If you need a copy of the outline, we got outlines for you. There is no one, just for the sake of perspective, no one in Honolulu is getting an outline right now. But because you are here in the high desert with us, you get your own free copy. We want you to follow along. We're a little bit overwhelmed these days. And... Um, all of us are for a variety of reasons. You know, my wife and I were talking today. We're, we're going through a series on prayer and elevating some of the greatest, you know, prayers in the Bible, in our opinion, some of the greatest prayers ever prayed. Uh, Cheryl and I are talking this afternoon, um, and it, it seems as if whatever we teach on, it just starts to pile up on us. For example, when we go through a a series on stewardship or generosity. It seems like we have more bills we weren't expecting, you know, during those presentations. When we have uh, a message on family, it seems like Cheryl just doesn't see eye to eye with me like uh, normal. Um, and and we have more arguments. And now we're going through the series on being overwhelmed. And it just seems like things are piling up. So we just kind of laugh at that, actually, because we know it's going to happen. And... Uh, uh, so uh, I know you are all going through your own um, issues that that tend to overwhelm you. Today we're going to talk about sorrow. Uh, there are things that you encounter in your life that are just flat out sad and hard to reconcile with a God that you know in your heart is a loving God, a God who said in his word that he has plans not to harm you, he has plans to prosper you and to give you a future. And yet what you are going through and the overwhelming sense of angst that you feel, you're overwhelmed, maybe for yourself, maybe for a loved one. And you just can't quite connect those dots like you wish you could. So that's going to be the theme, the theme today. Being overwhelmed, once again, we'll just define it for you. It's according to the dictionary at least a feeling that you're being buried or drowned beneath a huge mass. Sometimes that mass, sometimes that weight is sadness. 
We've tried to remind you throughout the series that there's a big difference between feeling overwhelmed and being overwhelmed, because if you're in Christ, you never will be overwhelmed. Paul told the Romans in just an incredible letter, articulating so many of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, writing in detail about some of the, the greatest theological positions, articulating so clearly for us what what we now have come to believe when he wrote the Romans. The book of Romans is just all in for those who call themselves God's people. Just so good. But some of the statements that he makes are are so helpful when you're feeling discouraged. What shall we say in response to all these things that could discourage us? He writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, If God is on our side, then pity the fool who's not. That is a mercerization of efforts, by the way. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? What kind of logic is involved that someone comes to the point where they say, I know what side you're on, God. I'm lining up opposite you. But sometimes we don't feel that. We know it's true. We know it here. We don't feel it here. Sometimes that reality doesn't make that short little jaunt from our brain down to our heart. We want it to. I'm amazed at the grace God gives during sorrowful times. We sing a song often that was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford back in uh, the late 19th century. He's a lawyer, pretty successful real estate broker. In 1871, you've heard about the famous Chicago Fire. Actually, there's a soccer team in Chicago named the Chicago Fire after that horrible event. But that fire destroyed much of this man's wealth, his holdings, his property holdings. But a couple of years after he lost so much monetarily, he was anticipating, his family was anticipating going to England on a vacation. And one of his great friends was somebody you may have heard of, Dwight L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, still championing the Word of God even today. And Moody was there in England conducting an evangelism tour, crusade, and so Spafford was going to help him with that. And because he had business still that needed to be attended to, he sent his wife and their four daughters, ages 11, 9, 7, and 2, ahead of him. And on November 22, their ship struck another ship. And his wife and four daughters went down with that ship. Mom alone survived. In fact, she cabled her husband back in Chicago and said, saved alone. So what do you do? That kind of news. Well, he, he wrote one of the most famous hymns in Christian history in response to that event. In his words, when peace like a river, attendeth my way, 
when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And you know, that's where we would all like to be. Maybe you've received news on par with his. Maybe you're like me and hearing that story and reading those words thinking, man, I'm such a wuss. I mean, I get discouraged at far less than that. But even in the midst of our sorrow, we can't have confidence in God. Getting there is not easy. Never has been easy, by the way, for any of God's servants, I'm sure that even Mr. Spafford struggled to get there. But you know what? He got there. God's servants have struggled, though. You have, I have. Even Jesus himself struggled. It's ironic that when we talk about sorrow and we talk about the overwhelming nature of sadness, that the prayer that we're going to elevate today is a prayer that Jesus himself prayed. In fact, it's a prayer that he offered on the night he was betrayed. For him and his disciples, they had just completed Passover dinner. We call it the Last Supper because it was the last time, at least on this earth, that he would celebrate Passover. And he'd been sharing with the fellows some uh, pretty amazing thoughts. He was praying even in that upper room, prayer that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John, so rich in and of itself, the theological truth. Judas had snuck into the night to meet with the Jewish authorities. Jesus and the other eleven have left the city. Matthew chapter 26 Verse 36 is where we pick up the story. And then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. James and John are the two sons of Zebedee. And so he took Pete, Jim, and John along with him, while the other eight remained a little further behind. And it says there at the end of verse 37, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. These guys noticed how overwhelmed with sorrow Jesus was even before he said he was. But then he said he was in verse 38. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Watch how deep his sorrow was. He said, I feel like dying Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus was counting on them to support him in his sorrow. Keep watch with me. He was hoping that they would be able to keep anyone else from interrupting this prayer that he was about to pray. He was counting on their moral support. He was counting on their prayer support. He had always included them in significant events, allowing them into his more private world. 
more than the other disciples, these three had access to Jesus. And so it was no surprise to anyone who was there that if he was going through something, and remember they still weren't clear as to what it might be, but it would make sense that he would pull these three men along with him. You know what's ironic to me? Of all of God's servants throughout the Bible and all the stories we've read in the Bible about men and women who were clearly overwhelmed by sorrow, no one was more overwhelmed than God himself. Luke's account of this night and this prayer adds some insight that Matthew, for whatever reason, did not include. In Luke chapter 22, verse 43, it says that Jesus required an angel from heaven to strengthen him during that prayer. Verse 44, that same chapter in Luke, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat. I don't even know the last time I prayed in a sweat. And it's not because it's humid, bro. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when you understand the context for this prayer, you understand what is happening or what has just happened. You get a sense as to why Jesus would feel the depth of that kind of sorrow. He was overwhelmed with rejection. He had come to save people. But all people wanted from him was a meal or a healing. He had just watched a man who had the chance to be on the inside with him for the last three plus years. Leave the upper room to betray him for what would be in our currency today anywhere from $3,000 to $4,000. Judas would sell Jesus out. In fact, going at once to Jesus, it says later on in chapter 26, after the prayer, we'll get back to the prayer in a minute, but after the prayer is over, it says that G Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And you've heard this every Easter season, every holy week of your life. You may have heard a pastor or a Bible study leader, maybe even your family, read this passage. And when G Judas betrayed Jesus, he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. While the rest of the disciples referred to Jesus as Master, as Lord, as the Son of the living God, the best Judas could come up with was Teacher. Don't, don't lose sight of that, y'all, because I could ask you, who is Jesus to you? And you don't want to be that guy who says, I believe he's a great philosopher, a historical, moral teacher. You see, only wanting to learn from Jesus as a teacher is essentially rejecting the fullness of his identity. And Jesus replied to Judas at the moment of 
his betrayal. Do what you came for, friend. And then the men, the soldiers, stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Friend. He calls him teacher. Jesus back. Friend. And this isn't even the friend like you and I might be friends. Hatarios in the Greek is not the warm and fuzzy friend. In fact, this word friend is used three times by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, and I taught on this not that long ago. I won't ask you if you remember because I'm afraid of the response. But anyway, in Matthew 22, in the parable of the wedding feast, you remember the wedding guest that was sitting there and he was underdressed? He had discounted the importance of taking the wedding garments that would have been provided by the host. And he said, I don't need your garments. I'm coming to the wedding dressed any way I want. The point of that parable is that if you show up in eternity expecting to get into heaven, but you're only dressed in your own righteousness, don't think you're going to get to stay there. And when the host of the wedding, obviously a reference to God himself, came to that guy, he called him Hatarias, he called him friend. And then in Matthew 20 in the parable, of the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard. You remember there was an employee who was paid a particular amount of money that the employer had promised him if he worked all day. And then later on at the end of the day, another worker came on the scene and Jesus gave that second worker the same pay. He gave the first one who had worked all day. And the first one who had worked all day said, you can't do that. I deserve more. And the employer said, this is my vineyard. And I gave you what I promised you, friend. And now here in regard to the betrayer, Judas. Someone who was proud of who he was as a devout Jewish man, dressed in his own wedding garments. A man who thought that the Messiah should have done things the way he thought a Messiah should have done things. Not the way Jesus was going about it. When you think about it, all three of these guys, same guy. This is a profile of the same guy. See, if Jesus is just a teacher to you, you tend to take pride in yourself. I'm just going to give a profile of who y'all are. I say, who is Jesus to you? You say, oh, I just think he's a great teacher. I just want to learn from Jesus. Well, you, you tend to take pride in yourself tend to reject the need for his righteousness because you're pretty satisfied with your own. You complain probably about how you're not being treated fairly, rejecting the grace that God offers you. Rejecting the righteousness of Jesus because yours is sufficient in your opinion. Rejecting the grace of Jesus. Jesus came to offer you righteousness and grace. Don't reject that. You know what Judas personified? The Jewish leaders of his day. They were proud of who they were as Jews, believing in their own self-righteousness. That would afford them an eternal place in heaven. <laughs> and they had a difficult time later on allowing the Gentiles into the church. Why? Because they showed up late for the party. That's why. Jesus was rejected. He offers us his righteousness, 
He offers us his grace and we reject him. You know what that is? That's depressing. To be rejected. And it's not just that he's feeling sorry for himself. Jesus' sorrow is that he is feeling sorry for the people who would reject the only things that can provide eternal life. His righteousness and his grace. And then he was overwhelmed by the burden of disappointment. Here are three guys. Peter, Peter, James, and John. Just stay awake and support me in prayer. And they couldn't even stay awake and support him in his greatest hour of need. And then he felt the greatest burden of all. And maybe it's the greatest burden for all of us. Whatever makes us discouraged, it's that burden of responsibility. I remember what Paul wrote. Remember the Apostle Paul? What a tough job that cat had. And he had a tough life. But what did he say? The greatest burden he carried was facing daily the pressure of the concern he had for all of the churches that he had planted. And in Jesus' case, his burden of responsibility was greater than any burden of responsibility any of us have ever carried, and that was to become the Lamb of God who actually would take away the sins of the world. You see, the Jewish people for centuries had celebrated Passover. Each family had killed a lamb every year as a way to celebrate their past deliverance from Egyptian bondage. That's what Passover was for, to celebrate their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. But also Passover was in order to celebrate what was promised, not just the past, but what was promised in the future as they still awaited national and spiritual renewal at a level that only their Messiah could provide them. That's what Passover did. It provided them a reminder that someone would be coming. And remember, Jesus, before he met those guys and pulled them into that arena in that garden that night he had just completed his last Passover meal and now he is ready to pour out his own blood in fulfillment of what? the Passover promise and the reality was certainly sinking in as just prior to dismissing the group that night he said as he took the bread and broke it this is my body as he took the cup and passed it, this is my blood for you. And that group left the upper room. They passed outside the city through the east gate, also known as the Golden Gate in Jerusalem's wall. And they walked down through the Kidron Valley, which separates the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and this Garden of Gethsemane, which is a garden there. In fact, there's a picture here I want to show you. You're going to notice... With this, this is the, the present old wall of Jerusalem. The one that Jesus and the fellows walked through to get out of the city actually is below um, the one that you see today. But this is the east gate. This is the golden gate. In fact, let's look at a close-up. You'll see that it's filled in. Of all of the gates around the ancient city of Jerusalem, this is the only gate that you cannot pass through. Those gates were filled in by a Muslim ruler in the 12th century to discourage the Jews from rallying behind anyone who claimed to be their Messiah. Why would that be significant? Because the scriptures tell us that when the Messiah comes, 
He will arrive on the Mount of Olives and march triumphantly into the city through the Golden Gate. And so, just to make sure that wasn't possible, they sealed it. Again, my wife and I, we talk about all these concepts before I come out and share them with you because I want to make sure that I'm not going to say something too offensive. So I always tell her everything I say because she's so gracious. And you'd be amazed how many times she says, maybe you should say it differently. But anyway, I was, I was explaining this to her. I was showing her the picture when we're kind of walking through this passage. And, and she said, really? The guy filled it in thinking that could stop Jesus? And I said, well, obviously that guy didn't know Jesus. But that's why they're, they're filled in. And, and the Kidron Valley runs right here along, along the gate of, of Jerusalem and it was, or the, the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And, and it was estimated that on every Passover, a quarter million lambs would die. 250,000 lambs per year would be killed and, and, and they would have this line of butchers to provide the bloodletting for the lambs so the families could take them home for the meal. And in that bloodletting, the blood would run outside of the city wall through the Kidron Valley, filling that river, that brook in the Kidron Valley. And when the fellows in Jesus walked out of that meal, they had to step across the blood of hundreds of thousands of lambs. Can you imagine Jesus stepping across saying, like this is me. In a few hours, my blood will be given not so the sins of my people can be covered for another year as was the intent of the Passover sacrifice, but so that the sins of my people could be eliminated and forgotten forever. And after Jesus was taken into custody, of course, marched back into the city for his trial and his flogging. And then led again outside of the city while he carried his cross to Calvary. And you know what the road is called? The Via Dolorosa. The way of sorrow. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from that. To the Father who could save him from the ordeal of the cross. And Jesus was heard when he prayed. As we'll read in a minute. He was heard because of his reverent submission. You know, we've looked at several prayers now in our series. And with Daniel, it was all about regimen. Remember? Three times a day. We've challenged you to do that. With David, it was about repenting. With Jehoshaphat, it was about relying on the power of God to show up for the battle and watch him fight. And for Jesus, it's about reconciling. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. It's about reconciling your desire... With God's will. And that's what we want to look at in this prayer. And I know I'm running out of time, but it's okay. <laughs> Peace be unto you. We'll get through it in good order. 
Let's look at Jesus' example. I want to give you a couple of thoughts, five, fill in some blanks. Number two, tell God your desires. You say, but wait a minute, we haven't got number one yet. I know. We're going to start with number two because most people think that's where prayer begins. Is this where your prayer life begins? Even with the Daniel challenge, is this where you, when you get on your knees and you face Jerusalem, if you really want to be a legalist, which I'm not suggesting, like Daniel would have been facing Jerusalem from praying with that open window in Persia. But is this what you do, Lord? Let me tell you what I want you to do for me. There's nothing wrong with this, by the way. Nothing wrong at all. Just remember the order. It's number two. Going a little further, look at verse 39. Now this is before the actual moment that Jesus was taken into custody. Peter, James, and John have been separated from the other eight. Jesus a little further praying to the Father. He says, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup of his blood. The cup of dying that horrific death on a Roman cross. Historians tell us there was no more difficult way to die than a Roman crucifixion. You know, Lord, if there's any other way to fulfill my responsibility here I'd be all in with that you know in all honesty that's what Jesus asked the Father any way to get around this that was his desire but what happens if our desires are not God's desires notice how Jesus ends the first round of his prayer that night going a little further verse 39 He fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Watch this. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, right there, there's an indication that Jesus came into the garden that night with a particular prayer bias. I want to talk about a prayer bias. His prayer bias was that he was firmly committed to the will of God. He was firmly committed to discovering and fulfilling the will of the Father. That's why our first inclination is always a second consideration. When we fall on our knees and we tell God our desires, that's always the second step. Before you get on those knees, before you begin expressing your sorrow, you need to do something. You need to commit your life to God. And I'm not talking about, you know, that first ABC moment where you admitted you're a sinner and you believe Jesus was a Savior and you chose to place your faith in Him. I'm not talking about committing your life as an initiatory step in your relationship with God, being born again, becoming a Christian. So many ways we can tag that event. I'm talking to all of you who would say, I am already a Christian. Have you committed yourself to fulfilling, to discovering and fulfilling the will of God in your life? Because until you do, just forget number two. There's nothing wrong with number two. It's just sequence, sequence, sequence. The psalmist, this is a verse all of us like to kind of latch on to. The psalmist said, take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I hear that all the time. People say, but doesn't God want to give me the desires of my heart? I mean, it's right there in the Bible. 
Listen, it's never a good idea to claim a verse in a vacuum. You take a verse out of the context, you're always going to get in trouble. That's why you need to look at context. And in this case, you need to look at the next verse. Number five, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do this. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. That's the part of the passage we tend not to remember. This is probably the most helpful idea I can share with you, certainly today, maybe ever, after coming to faith. See, we like to give you when we teach, we like to give you what we call takeaways from the text, which are practical and helpful things that you can just do. You know, like the Daniel challenge, 10 minutes, morning, noon, and, and evening. And so many of you have responded and said, that has been so good. I got a note this week from one of our missionaries who in listening to that challenge, this is a godly individual is now taking the Daniel challenge every day and finding a way to plant 10 minutes three times a day into, into their life. I'm not sure what I'm going to say now fits that category because it's such a broad statement. I don't know if this is a takeaway. I just want you to get this. I got to get this. People see prayer as a way to access God's power to help generate their agenda. That's how you see prayer generally if you're typical. That's why you go, step number one, I'm going to tell my desires to God because I want God to fulfill my desires. Okay. Nothing wrong with doing that as long as it's step two. Let me tell you what prayer actually is. Prayer is a decision. It might be a decision to be faithful, as was in the case with Daniel. It might be a decision to repent as was the case with David. It might be a decision to show up for the battle, as was the case with Jehoshaphat. It might be a decision to start over, as was the case with Nehemiah. Or it might be a decision to defer your desires to God's will, which was what Jesus taught us in the Gethsemane prayer. The reason the prayer was such a vital part of all of those men's lives is because even during the most difficult seasons of their lives, when they felt the most overwhelmed, their conversations with God took place after their commitments had already been made. When it comes to prayer, a conversation with God without a commitment to God leads to confusion about God. It's kind of catchy. So you commit your life to God. That's your decision. I don't know what your will is, Lord. But before I tell you my desires, I am all in with whatever you want to do. Now let me tell you my desires. Because I know you care. And no matter how deep my valley, I know you've walked a deeper one. Of all of the people who can help me right now, Jesus, you can. I've had to traverse a lot of valleys in my life, but I've never had to walk across the Kidron Valley like you did. And so you, you share your desires. You with me so far? All right. Number three, another blank. Ask God to reveal his will. See, for some of us, the only appropriate answer to our prayers is one that accommodates our desires. We tell him our desires, and we say, okay, I'll be expecting, I'll be expecting a response soon. 
We sound like an adolescent asking a father, Hey, Dad, will you take me to the party? Now, if you're a dad, raise your hand if you're a dad. Okay. Raise your hand if you, you've raised junior hires. Okay. When the son whom you love, arguably, well, maybe not even arguably, well, maybe sometimes arguably, more than anyone else in the world, asks you, if you will take him to the party, you know in your arsenal of answers there are a number of them that are appropriate. One of those answers might be, sure, let me get the keys to the car. There's another couple of answers that might be equally as appropriate depending on the circumstance. Maybe, yes, I will, but later, not right now. Because your sister just broke her arm and I have to take her to urgent care. And when that's done, I will take you to the park. You see, that something like that might be completely appropriate. So what is it? Sure, I'll do it now. Yeah, I have no problem with the request, but because I know something else is going on that's important, we'll have to do it a little later. Or is this ever appropriate for a parent to say to an adolescent, no, I don't think it's best for you to go to that party. That's appropriate. Not always. Depends on the party. Not always. Depends on who's going to be at the party. Not always. Depends on what's going on at the party. But that answer is a good answer sometimes. But let me ask you this. Which of those responses would be acceptable to a typical junior hire? This one. You know, there actually is another answer that is appropriate. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm sorry, but you must be confused. I am not your father. Now you say, <laughs> you say, really? That's, is there a spiritual connection here? And of course, Jesus said, you know, in Matthew 7, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And what's his response? I never knew you. Well, make sure you're, <laughs> see, if you're an adolescent, make sure you're talking to the right father. I was not, it wasn't an adolescent. It was just a young child. We were in a crowd and that child's father and I were wearing the same shade of blue jeans and pretty soon that child is like holding on to my leg. And then he looked up and it was just a look of sheer terror <laughs> holding on to the wrong dad, right? Yeah, there's only one response we think is acceptable. But God's will always always will be to respond to our prayer in a way that recognizes that whatever his agenda is trumps our desires. His will trumps our desires. That's the commitment you made. And then you told him your desires. And then number four, manage your desires to accommodate his will. See, these can be takeaways, I guess. Manage your desires to accommodate his will. Now look at verse 40. So he goes back to the fellows and he found them sleeping. Remember Peter, James, and John? He said, come along. Did you guys support me, pray for me, make sure nobody interrupts me? And he goes back and he finds Pete, Jim, and John. What are they all doing? They're all sleeping. Couldn't you men watch with me for one hour? <laughs> I love that. One hour. We're not asking all night here. Watch and pray. Look at verse 41. Watch and pray so you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. Here we go. You memorize this one, right? Every time you mess up. Oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Why is the flesh weak? Because you're not watching. Watch and pray. It's not just about prayer. It's about watching. Being careful. Staying focused on managing your flesh in order to facilitate your desire to honor the Spirit of God. Paul chiming in. Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit desires what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you don't do, often, what you really want to do because your flesh kind of takes over the program. In your heart, you want to do the right thing. But because of your weaknesses, you do so often the wrong thing. And what's the call here? Lord, this is my flesh. This is my desire. This is the comfort that I seek. This is the the wealth that I want. But Lord, you know I made a commitment to you already that whatever your will is, we got bigger fish to fry here than my being comfortable. The flesh works against the spirit. Got to manage it. So he goes away a second time. And he prays, my father, if it's what? Not possible. See, what is happening here? In the context of this prayer, Jesus said, if it's possible, can we do this another way? And then God, amazingly, reveals to Jesus. The Father reveals to the Son, I don't think so, man. This is it. This is what we came to accomplish. If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And last but not least, number five, here we go, have confidence in His will. When He reveals His will to you, you've got to go forward. You've got to have confidence in that. See, so much of the Christian life is about confidence, not capability. Y'all are oftentimes just struggling because you're saying, I just need more strength. I just need more strength. I just need more strength. And the Bible says, y'all are in Christ. you got all the capability you need. What you need is confidence to move forward in the will of God. He comes back, and this is where it kicks in. This is why I love this story. He comes back. He found them sleeping again. (laughs) Oh, thanks, boys. So he left and went away one more time, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Three times. Every time Jesus walks away, they're like sawn logs. Why? Because they're not managing their flesh to accommodate their spirit. It is their desires, their fleshly desires, that's taking priority over the will of God. And then he says, the hour has come, Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. I love verse 46. Get up. Get up! Let's go! Here comes my betrayer. And all of a sudden, this guy, who needed to be attended to by an angel, sweating as if it were drops of blood, sorrowful to the point of death, overwhelmed. Like none other. Let's go. Man, what a a shift. You know what I'm saying? confidence regained. Now Jesus is ready for the rest of the weekend. In fact, the demeanor he reflects throughout his trials, throughout his beatings, and his execution. 
I mean, he is like on solid ground. The comments he makes to guys like Pilate, Pilate, you know, tries to intimidate him. He says, you know, I have the authority to either let you live or to kill you. And Jesus said, bro, you got no authority except the authority given to you by my Father who's in heaven. You know what that sounds like? Confidence. And what a 180. Why? Because he prayed. He committed his entire life to the Father. The will of the Father. Did everything he could to fulfill the will of the Father. Made that commitment. Shared his desires. Asked God to reveal his will. Was willing to manage his flesh to accommodate the will of God. And move forward confidently. You know, I shared a verse a few minutes ago out of Jeremiah chapter 29. Didn't give you the passage. I just want to almost end with this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I I don't know what sorrow you feel. I don't know what you're going through. I know some of you are going through an illness. And you're asking God to deliver you from that illness. And you're praying, you're crying to God. This is my desire, Lord, that I be healed. But you have already made your commitment to the will of God that it would be fulfilled. And and so you say, Lord, uh, if it's not possible that I'm healed. I'm good. Get up. Let's go. Because you serve a God who has a plan for you. And it's not a plan to harm you. Hello. It's a plan to prosper you. To give you hope. And to give you a future. That's God's will. So we look at the prayer challenge again. You see it on the back of your program or your outline, not your program. I trust that you'll take 10 minutes every morning at noon and every evening this week. And remember the prayer that Jesus prayed about the will of God. And you know what that does? I know you guys have been in this challenge for a few weeks. Some of you, it's been transformational. I'm glad about that. But now we're adding a new level. Now we're inserting a new caveat to your prayer life. Because you have already made a decision to pursue his agenda in your life, whatever it is. And Father, I I just ask for my friends today and not here uh, just here in Victorville, but also our friends in Apple Valley and in Phelan and in Hesperia. I pray that we would be open to your leading, to your will, that we would be willing to embrace the impact that you want to create through our testimony, through our lives, through our conversations, no matter where you lead us, Father, no matter what valleys we have to walk through, May your will be accomplished first and foremost, we pray. 
in the great name of this Jesus that we learned again from today. All God's children said, Amen. Amen.